and the name that makes it happen. No further introduction to the man that's world is cracking. City's clapping for his relentless backing. A vast against the former team that just went packing. While they're slacking, another host are lacking. He tells it like it is an issue that nobody's tackling. While he's racking, the ones who keep on grappling. The listeners, some followers who get it, keep on stacking. Great friend, and the type to set a trend. President of see where haters, but the men there's no pretend. 17 years, he along with Pierce, entertaining Southern Kelly back by popular demand. Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, so glad you are here with us this week. I'm really, really excited about this week's podcast because I've been trying to track down a gentleman who I've known for many years, who I followed his career, who I'm a huge fan of, and I'm so appreciative of what he's given to America. And I just thought this was an interesting time to talk to a former Navy SEAL who became a sort of celebrity through being in a film called Act of Valor. His name is Rourke Denver, and Rourke actually played the character Rourke in Act of Valor. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Rourke, as the team leader, jumps on a grenade and sacrifices himself for the entire team. And that's what I really wanted to talk about with Work Denver, because it comes at a time where we're getting to the end of the year. And I don't know why the end of the year signals some form of finish line, but I know that I have a lot of things I want to do before the year is up. And I feel like there's also a lot of chaos right now. And much of that could be related to, you know, we've just had these midterm elections and there's a ton of news coverage. And in San Diego, for those of you outside of San Diego, there was a real sports debate in all of this with uh, a soccer city game plan versus a San Diego State West football game plan. And so there's a lot of chaos in the world and and lots of extremes left and right. And besides that chaos, I'm sure in your own life you have plenty of it. I know I do. I know I got plenty of chaos going. So what I thought about Rourke Denver as a Navy SEAL, this guy's carrying a gun and you know he could be underwater and there could be people shooting at him or he may have to deal with the elements. But with all that chaos around him in battle, he's got to focus and concentrate and lead, stay alive. And that's kind of like life too, right? I mean, maybe you're not carrying a gun. I mean, thankfully we're not. But, man, there's just so much going on that sometimes you just got to focus and and get through it. And that's where I am. And this is why I wanted to talk to Rourke Denver. So here comes former U.S. Navy SEAL who has turned himself into an actor. He'll talk about why. Um, A two-time best-selling author, a guy who's made countless appearances, like I said, not just movies, but reality TV shows um, and, and you know, appearances on all kinds of news channels and talk shows. Rourke Denver's an amazing guy and um, someone who I'm just, man, so proud to even, I call a friend, you know, I just think the guy is amazing and I've always been like infatuated with what a great man and American this guy is an athlete and seal and author and and just so much to this guy and I just needed him 
to help me focus. And I hope you get the same help that I know I got from Rourke Stories. So here comes Rourke Denver. And I want to say, of course, thanks to my teammates, guys like the Brigantine family of restaurants who have helped support this podcast in year one, 40 plus episodes in, to Gorilla Movers at GorillaMovers.com who were early on helping me as I needed a teammate's hand, which is something that Rourke will talk about. Uh, and of course, my friends at Callaway who've been with me for a very, very long time. And by the way, I just played the links at Petco Park. If you have a chance to play, definitely do it. And if you don't and you just want to see what it looks like, you should Google this. So thanks to my teammates. And here is the conversation with former Navy SEAL. And I guess you're never really a former Navy SEAL. You're always a Navy SEAL. The incredible Rourke Denver. Rourke. How you doing, brother? Scott Kaplan, I'm doing great. Thank you so much, man. I, I appreciate you blocking out some time for me today. No, I'm glad we can finally do it. It's overdue. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we're rolling. We're going. You, you good? You in a good spot? You can hang out and talk? Yep. You hear me good? Yeah, really well. Where are you today? Yeah. I'm out in Colorado. Is that home now? It is home now. Yep. So you're not from there, though. You're, you're from Northern California, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. Grew up in the Bay Area, California, and then, you know, 10 years in San Diego to kind of finish out my active duty side of my career and then try to figure out where we want to raise our kiddos, and we, uh, we, we decided to bail out of Southern California and get up in the mountains. Yeah, where, where in Colorado are you? We're, we're just uh, we're, we're outside of Denver. We're kind of up in the mountains and, and uh, you know, got a good spot. It's, it's great for me because I can get, you know, into the big city if I need to. I've got a great central hub airport that I can um, fly in and out of, but uh, also small town, good people, good schools. It's been great. I think the biggest question I would have is if you were going to go skiing on a Saturday, where would you go and how far would it be? It would only take us about an hour and 10 minutes to get to Breckenridge. Well, that's not so. That's not bad at all. Not bad at all. Hmm. All right. Well, listen. Thank you again for doing this today. Um, I have a theme of something I want to talk about, and I, I hope that we can weave this in as we're having this conversation. You, you ready for this? Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, being part of a team, number one. Trying to focus, particularly when you're in a leadership position, in particular through chaos. You get, yep. you get all that? Yeah, I think I'm familiar with this uh this set of circumstances. Yeah. See, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I know that people listening will appreciate this. Rourke, more so than ever, people are doing ten different things, you know? It's it's no yep. longer you just work for a company and you go home at night and you have dinner and you go to sleep. I mean, people are hustling because the internet has given everybody kind of a chance, right? Yep. And so what I know for me, and this is my experience, so I know a lot of other people are feeling the same way who, who will listen to this, there's a lot of chaos around me. Um, divorce, unfortunately, four children, um, growing startup business, keeping the radio show alive and well while there's missing pieces. Um, there's just a lot of chaos around me. When I think of you guys and Navy SEALs and you being a leader in the battlefield, there's just got to be chaos everywhere. How do you focus amongst all the chaos, Fork? Yeah, I think, well, one of the interesting things that I think people might not um, you know, kind of instantly recognize or, or, or maybe kind of think of is the chaos you just described that, that runs across, you know, your social life, your personal life, your family life, work, uh, the balance of all those different things. Um, 
I think is probably infinitely more challenging than than the chaos that unfolds in the battlefield. The the, the most the, the least stressed. I remember I came back from one of my combat tours and somebody was you know having a conversation, buddy from college. He's like, God, it must have been stressful. I was like, I'll be honest with you, it's the least stress I've ever been in my life. I wasn't worried about my phone bill. wasn't worried about you know things between my my bride and I are are, are perfect right now. I wasn't worried about um, you know where I had to be, what my daily schedule and trappings were. The only thing I needed to focus on was achieving you know mission success or whatever we were tasked with, keeping my troops alive, keeping myself alive, and kind of winning the day in the fight. So. While there's tremendous, tremendous chaos, it's it's singular in that you're not going to a war zone and then you know kind of being surprised when somebody starts shooting at you. That's that's kind of the game you're playing. So um, so there's a level to the the chaos on the battlefield that um, that doesn't translate, I think, as well to our you know kind of personal lives, our work lives, our, our civilian lives back here in the world. Now that I'm, I've, I've left my combat tours, uh, I, I feel like I've, I'm experiencing much more of that multi-layered uh, chaotic environment. And what I've found is um, one of the lessons I took from my time in the military works on this perfectly. And, it, and it's this idea that if you actually look at less, you'll see more. If you, if you look at less, you'll see more. I think our lives are so jam-packed, like you said, in a 24-hour kind of um, you know media influence, whether that be on your cell phone or whatever, cycle that you just can't get away from. And because of that, we just overload ourselves to the point where we kind of can't get anything done. And one of my snipers taught me about, we were basically glassing, using binoculars on this hillside to try and find these bad guys that we knew were bunkered in. I'm looking at this entire hillside, and I couldn't see anything, and my sniper keeps finding all these things. We got back to the you know compound we're cleaning our gears like god man why didn't you see everything and i wasn't seeing anything and he asked me he said were you looking at the whole hillside i said yeah of course he's like well that's your problem you can't look at the whole hillside you got to break it into a grid or a pie formation or something where you can really burn in on a detailed section move on and then things will start popping and then he just said it like like a boss walking out of the room he said if you look at less you'll see more and this just proved to be great one of my great leadership lessons of life that that while we have so much on our plate you can only you know multitasking is just it's not a realistic thing, right? You could only really do one thing well at a time. You know, maybe some people can knock out two, but I, I doubt it. So I, I think one of the things you need to do is kind of find that quiet, find that silence, and just attack the thing. Um, you know, that's most pressing. That'll hopefully free up the, um, the free up the you know the calendar, the schedule, the stress level to get on to the next, and just you know kind of eat the elephant one bite at a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is really. <laughs> if you look at less, you will see more. Wow. Yep. Yep, it was a real gift. He was just giving me a tactical skill. It ended up being one of the great leadership lessons I ever learned. Yeah. When you um, you talk about snipers, and it immediately makes me jump into wanting to ask you things about the SEALs. And I, I think the first thing I want to really ask you about, and again, I'll come back to the, the other stuff here in a second, but um, when, when did it become okay? I remember when I first met you years ago, it was still very taboo for SEALs to be public. Yeah. Um, now it seems like it's, it's okay. Right. I mean, in fact, I even remember kind of the early days, some of the guys who were the first, you know, seals to be public, they were kind of shunned. I, or at least that was my perception by the seal community. It seems like it's okay now that the seals seem, seem okay with America finally celebrating them. And they're out there in the public guys like yourself are publishing books and speaking and so on. Is it okay now? 
I think it's uh, I think it's a delicate balance, to be honest. I mean, you and I have been buddies for you know over a decade now, so you you know me better than uh, you know a lot of the folks that are kind of in that public space, and I think have a sense of kind of my personality. The thing I did going into it, and I try and be very very careful that I'm not throwing stones in a glass house. But when I talk about what we do, I really do that. I, I say we and us and the team and the greater ideals that I think I can translate, maybe um, you know, offer either you know a civilian company, a friend or a buddy, the lessons learned. And, you know, as you and I are talking that night, look at less, see more, I could give you something that's hopefully tangible and you can put in your toolbox to, to help work. Um, I think it's still a real fragile balance. I mean, we didn't really do it to ourselves, to, to be honest. Um, the high profile nature of the combat missions that unfolded in, you know, both Afghanistan and Iraq and some, some of the, you know, obviously the biggest profile missions that went down those wars, SEALs got into several of those and, and probably, probably the top mission. And that kind of thrust us into the light. Um, the last president, I mean, you know, President Obama, um, you know, kind of announced the bin Laden raid before we had time to even kind of control the media that went, went along with that. Uh, so it kind of thrust some of those things into the into the forefront. And I think the intensity level of, of the reporting, I mean, look, no, nobody that was watching the, you know, the Vietnam War unfold or the Korean War was looking at real-time live footage of what was taking place on the battlefield uh, from, you know, overhead imagery to on-the-ground troops. It's mostly after the fact that we've, you know, color corrected some of that footage and kind of seen what took place. You know, we're operating on a battlefield environment where, you know, folks are wearing head cams and GoPros and there's overhead imagery and, and, and embedded reporters that are out there. So the cycle's just different. So I think that thrust us into the light. I think some guys are doing right by it. And I think there's guys that the community, you know, just cringe that they're out there speaking on our behalf. I've tried to be an exceptionally good steward and, and stay above board. You know, the respect of the teammates is hugely important to me. I think there's some that'll never be okay with it. And I've got to kind of live with that, that there's guys that will never be okay with us saying anything. I also think if we say nothing, there's this treasure trove of the things we've learned about, you know, both personal behavior, teamwork, leadership, and really, you know, geopolitical um, understanding that would be lost on our civilian populace if we're not explaining what we've seen and what we've learned. So I think I think it's a I think it's a fragile balance is the answer. Oh, my God. But I think that's the most I think what you just said was the most important part of it. I mean, we all. I think kind of deserve to hear about it and learn from it because very few of us are ever going to get to go through buds. You know, very few of us are ever going to want to ever be in the mess that you've been in. So, so to, to hear some of your experience, at least what you're willing to tell and then learn from it. Oh my God, we, we all want that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a desire and I also think it's a, you know, it's a gift, um, of folks that are kind of on the ground and can give you ground truth. I mean, one of the, one of the highest profile, one of the one of the highest profile individuals that you'll see as an example is is is, is the sector, right? So you got General Mattis, one of the great warrior poet scholars to ever be a member of the United States military. And every interview you see with the guy or the you know the memes that come up on social media or things like that, you can tell this is an individual who is not spending a whole lot of sleepless nights trying to make a decision who he is, what he would give guidance on. On, very black and white, even though he knows the battlefield is gray, um, because he's been there. He's seen the bear. He's seen, uh, you know, troops in contact. He's had, you know, members of his command killed, killed on the battle space. He's been there, done it. And therefore, you see this kind of quiet, uh, competent confidence that, 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 
you know, is almost unheard of in the uh, the front office of the political space in this country. And, you know, any interview you see, you're like, okay, I'm pretty happy that guy's in charge. Yeah. So it, it is. If you can share that and translate some of those best lessons, lessons, best practices, I think it's a real gift. And I think it'd be a shame if it was completely circled the wagons and didn't share any of it. Yeah, you see, I mean, for me, I think the first thing that really, really got me interested uh, many years ago was supporting the Naval Special Warfare Foundation here in San Diego. Sure. And, and yep. once I I started to uh, get connected to that community, I was introduced to the Marcus Luttrell book, Lone Survivor. And I, I will tell you, man, I, I don't know what your opinion of all that is, but it was a, I know this sounds corny, but I'm telling you right now, it was a life-changing experience reading that yep. book. Yep. You know, um, the, the, what those guys went through, which by the way, the movie was great, um, but the book was, I hate, I sound like a book snob and I'm not. Because I don't read a lot of books. I mean, this is one that I actually no, got through. No, it's always that way, though. You can go yeah. into deep dive. It's long form in a book, so it's yeah. not that has to be confined to an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, for right. sure. Right, because I remember talking to Peter Berg, the director, and he was saying, you know, listen, yeah. there's a lot more I would have liked to have put into this thing. But that the, these these stories that you guys have, they're, they're potentially life-changing for a lot of people. No, for sure. I agree. I agree. And that, you know, hopefully the, the best of the group that's in that public space is doing that, is translating those those stories, those lessons, uh, that inspiration of folks to you know, light a fire and, and, and maybe give them something to something to pursue. And, and, and I, you know, I think the guys that aren't doing it right are hopefully doing no harm. And that that's, you know, that's that's up to opinion, really, in the long run. Yeah, Rourke, I mean, I think for me like the, the, and, and I think for people who are interested in this kind of stuff, the um, the entree into media for the seals for me kind of runs through you in that the, the, the movie act of valor. And you and I've talked about this in the past, but for people who are listening to the podcast and have not heard a lot about this act of valor, could you just explain that you were an active duty seal as I understand it? Yeah. And, oh yeah. And the seals wanted to start recruiting. And so they decided to use a motion picture and you and a bunch of real active duty seals went and became actors in a film. Yeah, it was, you know, we were in a little bit, this is around 2007, 2008, we were in a little bit of a recruiting depression to where we basically had more more folks leaving the teams than we had coming in. You know, we were like, man, are we going to be able to fill our boots and have, you know, the right best group of um, young lions kind of join our ranks? And and we'd never done that before. You know, the, the, the requirement of the battlefield had never been so great. Little did we know how long the battle would, would continue and how long we'd stay in the fight. But, you know, we knew we needed to do something to kind of light a spark and get more uh, more folks interested and, and kind of do a little more overt, targeted kind of recruiting and marketing, which is which is not what we do for a living. So um, this concept of, of making a major motion picture based off real SEAL events uh, and using the real guys, you know, when they asked us to do it, all of us said no, the, 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 the film company. We said, no, it's not what we do. It's not who we are. And then when the senior leadership kind of got behind it and then said, look, we're going to try and make it authentic, um, you know, you guys aren't getting paid to be Hollywood actors. I mean, we got a, we, we were put on a regular set of Navy orders. We got, uh, you know, three three hot meals a day and, and, uh, and our regular Navy pay. And, 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 you know, it's not in SEAL's nature to do anything other than the best they can do and anything they're tasked to do. So we said, hey, let's, let's go throw our hat in and do it right 
try and represent the brotherhood authentically and and positively, and and that was the goal, and it, and it proved to work. I mean, the, the 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 staggering number of folks that then got insight into who we are, what we believe in, and the real story. You know, if you've seen the movie, is about how much we care about our families, this country, our job, one another in the fight, and what we're willing to sacrifice and give to do the job. And so that that that's what I think really resonated, and why the movie, you know, you know, for a couple of weeks became the number one movie in America, and and, and kind of went hot. So it was it was an interesting experience. I I enjoyed a lot of it. There's parts of it where I think, you know, the quiet professional is, is something we take very seriously. You're like, man, I may have overstepped the bounds, but, you know, we were asked to do it, put on orders to do it, and we did our best by it. I think, though, it started a lot of other opportunities for the SEALs to, again, I'm, I'm going to say this, be celebrated by media. I think about some of the other movies, you know, SEAL Team 6, um, 13 Hours, American Sniper. Now, American Sniper is an example, right? Now, Chris Kyle, who's the American Sniper, he was one of your guys, correct? He, he and I were on the same team. He wasn't one of my assaulters. So he was uh, he was in what's called a sister task unit. So we were both at SEAL Team 3. And then there's individual assault teams within Team 3. And he was what's in kind of considered my sister task unit. So he, he didn't work for me. He wasn't one of my assaulters. But we were, you know, downrange in combat at the same time and, and on the same team. I just thought about him the other day, Rourke, the, uh, yeah. the, the Pittsburgh massacre that happened in that synagogue. Yeah, I've been there many, many times, you know, played college ball at Pitt, went to Pitt. Well, you were at Syracuse. Right, yeah, um, and I've been in that synagogue many times. And there was a woman, 97 years old, who was a Holocaust survivor oh. who was killed. Yeah. And I thought that's like we, we all said that about Chris Kyle. Like this guy right. went to battle, was in gnarly shit. Right. And then oh, yeah. and then gets killed the way he, you know, after surviving what he survived. No, it was one of the strangest phone calls I've ever received. One of my teammates called and said, you know, Chris has been killed out in Texas. And it, exactly like you just described. It was such a strange, you know, incongruent thing to kind of wrap your head around. You're like, God, what, what we all, he survived in, in, you know, the obvious situation where you, you, you if you're going to be killed, that's where to be killed, right? And come back under that flag and get full military honors and, and go out that way like a gunfighter. And to get, you know, literally shot in the back by a, a sick teammate was just a, a very strange pill to swallow. Yeah. Of all the media that you've been able to do, from movies to television appearances um, to reality game shows, for all the, the media that you've now been able to do, what, what's the one you, you enjoy the most or um, have enjoyed the most? Yeah, you know, media-wise, I've, I've, I've enjoyed most of what I've had a chance to kind of participate in. Um you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think when I look at the kind of post-active duty, you know, being out in the world, being a little bit more in the public space, the things I enjoy the most weren't so much the high-profile media things, but the opportunity to talk to young folks and, and plant seeds and hopefully light a fire and maybe, you know, um, course correct or alter the trajectory of some young lion's life that might have not known where, where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do, and maybe this gave him a framework and a path. Uh, that might be a fit for him. So probably that is is the most satisfying. In the actual media stuff, um, you know, I did American Grit, which was a TV show with uh, Big John Cena, where we had a bunch of military folks working with civilians going through kind of military style challenges and things like that. That that show, you know, turns into a reality show, and then the editing kind of obviously picks and chooses what it wants to kind of. Um, 
uh, show and, and outline. It really was something to kind of mentor the team of four folks I mentored. And it got all the way down to I had two females left on my team um, who were my final kind of competitors, and they're just special gals. I mean, I, I just really think of them as, as you know, sisters and kind of real peers and, and, and people I care about. And, and, and one of them was a real, you know, hundred and nothing pound um, black female from the South that had zero confidence, had probably never had anyone believe in her in her life. And, um, you know, we got her to the finals and she was like a dragon slayer. She sent some of the biggest, toughest competitors in the competition home just by having grit and toughness and believing in what I would tell her to do. And she did it and it worked. And uh, that was a pretty special experience. And getting to know Big John uh, Cena, who's just one of the all time great global superstars and, and to call him a, an actual friend uh, was a very neat experience. That's yeah. cool. You know, it's so funny. We were just talking about John Cena the other day on the radio uh, with my colleague, Darren Smith, who precedes me on air. And we were yep. telling a story of years and years ago in probably 2004 or five, before Cena blew up to become this big star, there right. was a WWE show here in San Diego and uh, a friend of mine was one of the wrestlers. And so we all went to the show that night. And then after the show, we're all at Hooters drinking beer and eating wings. And there's John Cena sitting at the table, young John Cena, pre-superstar. This is when Dwayne yeah. Johnson, the rock was really the star of wrestling back right, then. Right. And it's just yeah. such a funny thing to watch a guy go from, you know, young guy to now one of the, I mean, like a, a movie star, wrestling star. I mean, he's right there with The Rock. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he, he's, he's, he's getting bigger and bigger every year. And the, the thing that's beautiful about it, and I think The Rock's the same way, just genuine good human beings. I can't, I can't speak to The Rock personally as much, but John is, um, you know, he's done more of the make-a-wish, you know, uh, uh, grants to kids that are, you know, terminal and stuff like that than any celebrity in history. He doesn't even advertise most of it. He's just a what you see is what you get. Very smart, very capable, very good human being. I, I count him as as one of my one of my my really good friends. He's he's a special one for sure. I love that he's having the success he has. It's it's well earned, and and he's the right type of person to 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 have that type of platform. Rourke, you know, you started talking about just on American Grit. You know, here you're mentoring this young lady, right? And now you have this yeah. this great relationship or great respect for her. It sounds like you treat her like a teammate. You've you've said over and over again when you talked about the SEALs and the guys that you've been in battle with, you kept saying we and team and everything else. Um, go back to team for a second because before you become a Navy SEAL, you're a two-time national champion lacrosse player at Syracuse. I'm just wondering if what you know now is that it's it's the college sports or maybe it's just being on a team high school college etc that prepared you for being on a seal team oh without question i mean we we've done the actual hard data and and study that uh folks that competed particularly in team sports do better in training than those that did not doesn't guarantee you make it through training of course and then you can certainly be you know a cerebral chess champion that never spent time with another human being and probably become a seal the, the folks that do the best are generally those that, that kind of grew up in the team environment. Um, you know, high-end sports, uh, you, can, you can make the obvious easy connection, right? You work as a team. You die as a team. You, you, you prepare and train and suffer as, as, as one unit to get to the games and then fight through those games. You deal with loss. You deal with short, shortfalls, injury, suffering, um, to all see the field. You hate to lose. You want to win more than anything. All those things, as I described those, you can see would stack up pretty – 
succinctly with wanting to be a, a, a SEAL and, and a member of a team. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, if you're – the SEALs is, you know, the acronym or the nickname for who we are. You've been around us enough to know that, you know, we call each other team guys. Like, if I were at a, if I were at a party and didn't know if somebody was a SEAL, I mean, usually we can pick each other out in a lonely place, even if we didn't know we were from the same brotherhood. But if I was to ask somebody I didn't know was in, you know, in a restaurant, in a dinner party or something like that, hey, is that, is that guy a SEAL? I wouldn't say is he a SEAL. I'd say is he a team guy. Mm-hmm. So it's in the DNA of who we are that no one individual trumps the team. No one individual is going to do anything other than bring credit or disservice to that organization. And so you got to you got to put in your full time work to be the guy that hopefully is only adding to the team. Um, but I, I talk a lot with you know kind of corporate America, and then I talk to a bunch of young folks and stuff. And I, I tell people when it comes to you know leadership and bravery and courage and things like that, make it a team sport. You know, I, I was never alone on the battlefield. I was never out there having to, you know, bind up courage in some place alone. I had somebody to my left and a right that believed in me. I believed in them. I do. I, you literally would die for them. They would do the same for me. And so those things are team sports. And if you can get connected to folks that are in the fight with you, it's just been the best parts of my life. I, I like some solitary time, um, but uh, the team environment is, is, is my most comfortable space. And, and you know what's amazing is that when you're when you're a teammate with somebody, when you've done all the things that you've just described, you know, played and practiced and and won and lost and suffered and and did all the things that you just described. When you're a teammate with somebody, you become at least this is the way I am. You're a teammate for life. And whether it's my my college football teammates, my high school football teammates, or even you know, work. Um, my my race across America teammates, me and seven yeah, other sure. guys. And so even though, you know, we were in our 40s or 50s, um, not necessarily 20 or, or 25, those are my teammates. Those are my brothers. I feel that way about every team. That's why I love being part of a team. It's why I love having my kids involved in sports, because even if they don't have the decorated lacrosse career that you had or the college football experience that I had, they will get what you describe from being on a team, I think. One hundred percent, and and yeah, I mean, I still I still communicate with you know teammates of mine from youth sports up through high school, and then certainly my college teammates, and obviously the SEAL teammates. I do think you keyed on something with the race across America. I think I think the more you suffer and the more hardship you face as a team, the closer you become. Right? I mean, it's the it's the hard things and the tough moments that really bind humans to each other. I mean, it's it, it's rare somebody ever jumped up and celebrated doing something easy, but when you do something hard, it's like you just kind of blend into um, a very special relationship that can't be can't be broken yeah in fact i can just tell you right off the top of my head uh we're about two days into this race and our one of our strongest climbers on our team um who said like no body fat at all now he's suffering from the effects of the altitude in colorado um the heat that we had already faced and the climbing that we had done in arizona etc and he was cramping up real real bad and we needed him and, yeah. and I, I said, look, man, I said, get in the other car, get, get your nourishment and, and, and make sure you take in all your nutrition. Let the, the people who are part of our team, let them massage it all out. And we'll, the three of us will pick it up from here and when we'll get you back later and you'll, you'll come back and help. And, yeah. and, and to this day, when I see that guy and I haven't seen him as frequently, um, I know that he, he was suffering and I sacrificed for him, and then he came back and got me later when I needed it. That's him. right. 
That's right. No, that's where the good stuff happens. I was on. I was actually on a, a outdoor uh, adventure with a, a group of folks um, last year. It was interesting. It's one of my military background things. I think that really kind of changed the attitude of the group. One of the team members had basically packed too much gear, you know, just had too much gear on him. We got to a point where, you know, we were slowing down, had too much, and he was kind of falling apart, and, and the team was kind of giving him a hard time, like, what's going on? He's like, I, I think I, you know, I packed too much. You couldn't get rid of any of the gear. And he said, so I, I could really use some help carrying the gear. And there's there's five of us in the group, and and, and, and three of the guys, not me, were like, you packed it, you got to carry it. And, and I just cut him off immediately. I was like, give me some of the gear. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, man, we're on a team. I, you know, I'm going to carry some of your weight right now, and I could fall apart here in the next three miles, and you might need to carry me. I definitely don't want to be the type of teammate that's like, oh, you're on your own. I'm going to put you in your own you, you know, silo, and you got to suffer more than me. Let's do this together. And then, of course, everybody on the team took a deep breath. We divided up his gear. It wasn't much heavier than anybody else's was going to be anyway, and we took off. Yeah, that's what it's about. What about in your career on the battlefield can you think of a time where a situation like that happened where I mean, i'm sure there must be many times but i'm talking like real life and death where you know i, I gotta pick it up for you or you've got to pick it up for me or there's a really low moment right now for our team you, you know you got anything like that yeah, no, I mean, unlimited stories that kind of come from the battlefield in that space. I mean, look, we lost teammates over there, so you've got somebody that, you know, an hour before you're, you're basically family with and, and, and everything is good, and then they're gone. And, and now it's, hey, is this organization resilient enough to then go out and, 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 you know, kind of honorably attack the battlefield and stay in the fight and do the job, even though we lost someone we care about as much as family? Uh, the answer was was virtually always yes it was like yes let's keep keep proceeding let's honor our teammate by staying in the fight and and, and keeping the legacy moving forward um so the morale in that part becomes a huge a huge mission of the leadership and how you balance that team out and make them move forward and, and proceed um you know the right way and then you know at any given time somebody hits the wall man and then there's times where you didn't do anything wrong I mean, we had guys we, we were operating in um you know the summer in the uh you know arabian peninsula so it's 135 degrees we're in full combat loadouts with 60 50 80 pounds of gear on you know full sleeves helmet gloves pants you know long sleeves the whole deal and uh you know eventually even with all the perfect nutrition someone's going to crash and then it's just like hey let's readjust the entire battle plan to make sure we get them home we're only as good as as, as the weakest per- person in the moment and they're going to be a rock star tomorrow and i'm going to need it so it was very 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 easy to to make sure we were operating in such a way that we took care of every teammate and you know our entire ethos is we're not going to leave somebody behind on the battlefield so we're not going to give up if, if things get tough yes yeah, I love to hear about stuff like that. That's why, yep. again, it's kind of like what you said earlier, you know, sharing this stuff. We all get to, to learn a little bit from it and, and take it and maybe even apply it. Um, when you think back to, you know, you when you're on a SEAL team, you can trust that everybody is prepared because everybody's been essentially prepared the same way. In other words, at least this is a perception. Once you, Rourke, know that the guy next to you has been able to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish, the physical and emotional part of SEAL training, you, I think now then feel like I can trust this person. I know what he is all about. That, that, that's the whole reason SEAL training is designed in such a way to be so Spartan and so difficult is that we are going to quite 
literally and functionally ensure that the one thing every operator that leaves the program successfully, the basic program in Coronado, they're out to a SEAL team is, at a minimum, they are never going to quit. They're never going to give up uh, on themselves or on a teammate. When you know that as a group, I mean, just think of the potent alchemy of kind of confidence that comes from the fact of knowing that everyone that's with you is never going to throw in the towel. I mean, everyone has had the experience that you're like with a group or a team and somebody gives up and it hurts the whole team and, you know, you're in big trouble because of it. If you can know that at a minimum is never going to happen, man, the, the, the performance that goes, you know, beyond that is almost limitless. So, yeah, that, that's why the program is designed. That's why 75 to 80 percent of the young lions that show up to SEAL training don't see the finish line because we make it so challenging to ensure that at a minimum you're never going to quit. Do you think most guys who quit SEAL training, um, is it because of the physical or is it because of the mental? Almost all mental. I mean, I think most of us agree it's got to be at least 90-10 mental to physical. Because the fact matters, if you made it even through the barriers of entry to get to the training program, you have all the physical tools. We have a physical screen test, requirements to get in. I mean, everybody that's there physically can do it. So it can't be that because everybody that goes, you know, has that down based on our standards. So it's got to be something else. And that's, that's kind of the mental and the spiritual side of things. I, I think I've seen some of the books that have said, you know, everybody thinks about quitting when they go through SEAL training. That is patently false. Most of the guys I know that made it, made it, uh, it never really occurred to them that, that, that they would quit. I mean, it never crossed my mind. I was just like, look, whatever they put in front of me, I'm going to go through it, around it, over it. I'm going to blow it up or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fall trying and, and see the finish line. So, you know, my class started with about 180 guys. We graduated 22 and I bet on that graduation of Friday, 22 guys, maybe there was one guy in that group that was like, I can't believe I made it. You know, but I think everybody else, <laughs> I believe 21 else were just like, yeah, come on, man. We knew we were going to make it. Let's go get to the SEAL team. You know, yes. It's a real mental uh, kind of spot where you know you can do what uh, what's thrown your way. Yeah, I, that's how I perceive it. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, and everybody's going to ridicule me for saying this, but I feel like, like yeah, had, had I decided to become a SEAL, I would have gone to SEAL training and become a SEAL. No, not ridiculous at all. That's the entire mindset. If you have that, you're going to see it through. When I hear young guys that I mentor that are wanting to go in the program now, if I ever hear them say, you know, I really want to test myself, I want to see if I can do it, I say, don't bother. If you want to go be a SEAL, go do it. And then everything in between now and me saying that and you becoming a SEAL is just going to be the path you need to walk to get there. If you're like, I want to see if I can, don't, don't bother. Yeah. Yeah, because, yep. because I can tell you this, that, um, you know, again, I'm just my own experience, but doing an Ironman, I could look at my watch and I could see that the sun was setting and I knew how much time there was left in the race, (laughs) but there was not a question. It it wasn't, hopefully I'm going to finish. It was, I'm going to finish. The question is how much time is it going to take me to do that? But there was never a moment where I was like, I got to stop. I can't do this anymore. There was never a moment. No, I, I talk to a lot of young folks when it comes to doing hard things. I talk about with my kiddos, you know, there's the, the great story of the, the great explorer Cortez, you know, when he came, when he came to the Americas and, and, and got there, you know, he burned the boats, right? So there, there's no, there was no retreat. There was no going back. And I think burning boats, like in your mind, is a, is a very 
potent, powerful thing to do. Don't give yourself an out. And then guess what? You, you got to go through it and, and finish it off. And I'm trying to, trying to teach that to my kiddos. And I'm lucky I got a partner in crime that's doing the same. My bride, she brought both our kids in the world with no drugs, no medicine, not even a doctor. We did it with a midwife and her. And, you know, when we're in the, in the courses kind of at this birthing center there, there in San Diego, you know, up in, um, uh, it was up in, um, uh, kind of up in Hillcrest, a really neat birthing center. So all midwives, no doctors. I mean, if something went wrong, they'd rush you to the hospital. But even going into the course leading up to, you know, our our birth and then and, and you know the pregnancy leading up to the birth, you could see the 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 moms in the room or the future moms in the room. They're kind of like, I really want to try and do it. You know, I really want to do my best. And you just kind of be like, hey, this is going to be a tough afternoon for you when that shows up. Whereas my bride was just like, I'm going to do this. And you could tell the midwife was like, Yeah, you will because women have been doing it for thousands of years and you can do it too and so she did she just saw it through because she made up her mind she didn't give herself an out okay so let me let me jump into business then you ready yeah yeah so this is the way i feel about business as well so i have a startup company and i'm about a year and change into it and i'm further along than i thought i was going to be when i started yep and what i mean by that is about a year ago, I raised half a million dollars. I figured by now I'd be long out of money and I'd either have something or I wouldn't. Well, right. things changed and, you know, I had to make adjustments along the way. And while we still have some money, we have a nice prototype, a, a good starting point now. And what I hear from people all the time is, is this work. Well, you know, it's like 95% of startups fail. I hear that about the right. restaurant business and 95% yeah. of restaurants fail. Yeah. In my mind, failure is not even an option. Yep. And, and by the way, I'm not positive I know what the finish line looks like today. I don't know. But the notion of failure, 95% fail, it's not even in my mind. I'm just, I'm building, I'm building, I'm building. And then eventually... It's either going to become really super successful or somebody's going to buy the software or something good will ultimately come because that's yeah. just the way I'm wired to think. Yeah, no. And again, it, and it's a choice, right? That's a choice you've made personality wise, um, you know, business wise, spiritually to kind of go about it that way. And that, that, that's what's great is you get to choose to be that person or you get to choose to be the person that has negative self-talk and, you know, pisses and moans and complains when things go wrong or somebody, you know, somebody did something to them and that's why it failed. The beauty of your mindset and the mindsets of, in my mind, winners, which I know is a non-PC term, um, you know, in the current uh, ether is that let's say it does fail, which based on you tell me what you just told me, it's not going to not, not, not in a complete variant that, that somebody would be able to quantify, but let's say it does you will still be able to smile going into the sunset that you exhausted every energy and probably every avenue to see it through to a winning position compared to those that throw in the towel early in the fight. And that, that's the good stuff, man. If you exhaust yourself, the same thing when you tell your kids, you're like, look, I don't care if you win or lose. I care that you give max effort and do your best. You do your best. You got nothing to worry about. Win, lose, or draw, you're good. So then it goes back to what we were, we were talking about with SEAL training and it being a mindset. My mindset is I'm going to succeed. Failure is not on my mind. Your mindset in SEAL training was I'm going to become a SEAL. I'm not here to just test myself and quitting is not an option. 
what what did you find? And generally, maybe there's maybe there's a sort of a, a bigger answer here. What do guys find to be the absolute toughest part of the actual training itself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably in some ways different for everyone, you know, where you hit some crucible or wall, that's a little bit of a hiccup more so than anything else that's happened in training. I mean, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, and, you know, there's guys that are fast on land and struggle in the water. There are guys that are exceptional in water, struggle on land. I, I joke about it. I wrote about it in my book a little bit, but to be honest, the only point I thought in SEAL training I was in trouble is I, I have a learning disability in math. I love to read and write and literature, and that type of expression of the way my brain works. Math is very, very challenging for me, and I mean down to like very simple math and we had to take a, a physics test like a mathematics and physics test for dive training so you understand all the principles that are taking place underwater in the dive tables and things like that and I failed the first time I took the test I mean because it was just raw math that for everybody else would have been rudimentary easy stuff right for the enlisted guys let alone the officers who all have graduate degrees from you know top colleges or you know you know undergrad degrees from top colleges and fortunately I had a senior chief that was like hey let's stay up all night and you know I'll work with you on it my roommate my teammate my, my swim buddy helped me and I passed it the second time but I did it by the skin of my teeth so I laughed that a math test was probably the only thing that almost uh, derailed my entire process to become a SEAL but again I could have thrown in the tail, towel after failing the first time or not put in the sweat equity that that night and the next day to get the pass done you know the following day and uh, I'm just not okay with with giving up and not doing it but um, to answer the question I think the thing that gets people the most is I think everybody thinks San Diego is this idyllic Southern California um, you know warm weather town which in most part it is what a lot of people don't realize that and you know this well but that Pacific current runs right through the coast of, of Southern California and so the water is not Hawaii I mean if they move that training program to Florida or Hawaii you'd get a lot more grass but we can get you bone-numbing, shaking down to the core of who you are right on the verge of hypothermia um, because of that cold water. And I think it's that immersion in the cold, wet, miserable suffering that seemingly looks like it will never end that really plays on people's mind. You know, because being cold is horrible. Being wet cold is about as bad as it gets. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say all that because math is also, for me, a struggle. I mean, I literally yeah. sit with a friend of mine and he'll, he'll, he'll coach me in math. And he'll work with me on percentages and I, I can't do it super fast. And he's like, I cannot believe you don't know how to do simple fundamental stuff. And, and, and yet when I think about what you just talked about, that would be for me, I think. And for most people, the, the ice cold soaking wet middle of the night beat down would be perhaps the hardest part of it all physically. And I, yep. I guess more so, really, yep. I guess it's really about your mind, though, because in the end, you, was there ever a point where you were so cold, you're like, I got to get out of here? No, no. To be, to be honest, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the suffering. I, I knew what I was getting into. And, and all I felt as I was going through it is like, dude, this is one, one evolution, one hour, one minute closer to my goal. And so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than anything else. I remember smiling and laughing more in training than, than frowning and crying, that's for sure. Did you ever use that? Did I ever use what? The the experience of either freezing or tremendous suffering. Did did it did it come back? You were trained to be able to handle it. Did you ever need it? 
Yeah, I mean, without question. I mean, the misery on the battlefield, it turned out more of my time was in the heat than it was in the cold. Uh, but there were plenty of days you could just be like, look, I want to pack it in. This is not for me. And, and once you've suffered to a certain level, suffering becomes something that you're just inoculated to. And I, and I enjoy it. I seek it out, much like you. I mean, you, you have a personality trait that would have done very well in our organization. One, you like being part of a team. You're physically fit. You like the challenge. And, you know, race across America doing stuff like that. That, it, that it, It's fun in reflection. It is fun while you're doing it, mm-hmm. in so much that it's going to take a lot of suffering, pain, and, and misery to get to the finish line. And so if those are things that, that, that you know, appeal to you, then you're in the right place. And that, now I seek it out. I'm, a, I'm an, a, you know, an outdoorsman and a hunter, and I'm, I go to the hardest, toughest environments with a heavy pack to do it myself and get up into terrain that nobody else wants to be in, and that's, that's where I find the critters, and that's where I find, um, for me, that the suffering actually kind of b- brings peace. It brings, like, balance in my life as opposed to being something I have to endure i enjoy it i mean i seek it out <laughs> i know people think that sounds crazy but that sounds completely normal to me um, exactly people, I, mean, I know, I know in your personality yeah yep. pe- people who um who who take part in endurance sports can appreciate what you've just said because suffering is a uh, is a place where you find yourself. I know that sounds right. a little too corny, maybe, but I can remember yeah. a guy named Chris McCormack who won the Ironman World Championship in 2010, and we were talking about the run, and I was asking him. I said, you know, the run seems like the hardest part, and he said, yeah, but the run is just you and your heart and your mind. And you get to decide what you're really made of, and I always that always stuck with me, you know. Yeah, and I think the I think the gift or the thing that you want to export to that, and which I'm trying to teach my kiddos and and get them into situations where they get uncomfortable, is that life is going to throw suffering and hardship at you. Nobody gets to escape it. Nobody gets out of this thing unscathed, without scars, without pain, and and you know, in the end, we're all going to the same place. So. In my mind, if we know that to be true, which I think all of us do, I don't, I don't think there's anybody that gets to duck some level of pain, misery, and suffering. We all have you know, varying degrees of that experience. Why not prepare yourself for it? Why not train to it in such a way that when it comes, you're kind of ready for it? And that's the gift of, of, of having been a SEAL and having done the things we've done is that, that – there's not a whole lot that somebody's going to throw at us. We're going to be like, oh boy, I got to pack up the tents and go, you know, suck my thumb in the corner. I'm just going to, I'm just, I mean, if the zombie apocalypse starts tomorrow, I'm ready to get in that fight. <laughs> yeah, you're armed and dangerous, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of us, we're going to be behind you. Yeah, Roger. I'm happy to stand there. I'm, I'm familiar with standing in between evil and the things I care about. How did you, and this is one thing that I, I'm always fascinated by, is, is people who are not just one thing. Um, what made you think back when that, that a lacrosse player who's a big, strong, physical, you know, kind of a game and an athlete could go become a SEAL where he's got to know how to work his way through the water and swim and, and you, know, you know, just all the things that are not, I mean, I would think, there probably weren't that many lacrosse players. Maybe I'm wrong on that. What what made you so no, confident? Lacrosse is, is one of the pipeline sports that guys oh, do it well because it's a it's a it's a combative sport. It's a team sport that like exhibits you know a lot of individual skill sets that come together as a team. So I think it's a perfect sport. I had a really good pedigree. It, you know, not by by design, but I actually grew up swimming. I played water polo through high school. I was gonna I was getting recruited to play water polo at good schools out there in California. Once I got recruited to play lacrosse at in that area 
the top school, that really kind of called to my, you know, combative nature. And so I made that choice. So, you know, I had the running, you know, kind of middle distance, high sprint, high turnover running and, and, and banging heads of lacrosse. I was very competent in the water and, and kind of grew up in, in California where I spent time in the ocean. So I had all those, all those things in there. I've told the story a lot about why I became a SEAL. I'll share a different story with you because I just, I don't tell it all that often, but I, uh, I really like this story is um, I remember my freshman year when I was at Syracuse. Uh, we're the number one ranked team in the country. North Carolina Tar Heels are number two. We're playing North Carolina at North Carolina for the first game of the season. Season opener is one versus two down in Chapel Hill. So we're practicing the Friday night before the Saturday game, and my coach that I played for is, is, is probably you know, easily in the conversation for one of the greatest coaches in the history of lacrosse, probably one of the greatest NCAA with his win record and championships and just phenomenal, phenomenal coach, motivator, mentor. But he's running practice, and our team's kind of goofing off. We were always a real loose playing team, but we're kind of goofing off. It was bothering him, tried to get us to focus. Nobody did. He's like, that's it. Practice is over. Everybody on the end line. So we all run down the end line. He starts running us on sprints. And we thought it'd last a couple minutes. But look, we're playing. We're number one ranked the country. We're playing the heels the next day. There's no way he's going to run us into the ground. He starts running us into the ground. I mean, no joke running us into the ground. Well, after 15, 20 minutes of running, he's like, everybody down the far end line. He's like, this is the way this is going to work. Now, now just a caveat to this whole story. When it came to sprints, I, I, there are multi-time All-Americans in every position at Syracuse when I was there. I mean, we just had, we, we had a roster that was hard to believe. So I knew I wasn't going to crack the starting lineup on talent as a freshman. I couldn't control that. What I knew I could control was how hard I was going to work to get on that field. And suffering, things like suicide runs and sprints and out and back and liners, that's just guts. That doesn't have to do with your actual speed. That's just how hard are you willing to suffer. And I love that stuff. So you might beat me at Syracuse, and I think my teammates will all back me up on this. You might beat me at Syracuse on the first or second sprint. You ain't beating me on the last 5, 15, 20 minutes of sprints because that's just where guts come, and I'll compete with anybody when it comes to that. Well, we do all this running. I win almost every sprint of that, like, horrible pounding session. I also know I'm not probably playing the next day, but nonetheless, I would have done it even if I was a senior. So he says, get on the end line. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to blow the whistle, and from the end line, everybody's going to run to the midline. The first two guys, the first two people that get across the line in each wave are done. You get to go to the locker room and take a shower. Everybody understand? Yep, let's go. Boom, the whistle blasts. First two guys go to the locker room. Boom, the whistle blasts. First, next two guys go to the locker room. I get emotional sometimes when I think about this story. I had won every sprint, damn near every sprint I'd ever won at, run at Syracuse, and I ended up in the last four. The last four, I'm sitting there still running as hard as I can. And so he blows the whistle. I get across the finish line, you know, second on that one, so I'm done. I run through the line, take my helmet off, throw it on the ground. I'm so upset. As soon as I do it, I regret it. I grab my helmet, put it on. I come back to my coach. He's standing right there. I know I'm going to get in trouble throwing my helmet. I said, Coach, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw my helmet. He's like, nope, I understand why you're upset. Don't think for a second it's lost on us that you run hard every time, even when it doesn't pay to get to the finish line. That's just who you are. And trust me, if you keep doing this in life, let alone on this field, you are going to be an exceptional performer. And I caveat this whole story with when I got to the SEAL teams and I looked left and right with my teammates in training, at both at basic training and then at the team, I finally realized I found a peer group of dudes that would run hard every time, no matter what. 
that's what I think truly led me to the SEAL teams. It was to find that peer group of just exceptional dudes that were willing to give absolutely everything of themselves and to the team and to the job um, that I wanted to be a part of. And I, and I found it there for wow. sure. Wow. Wow, man. That is, that's amazing. Yeah, man. I mean, that is, that is really, you know, it, it, what always fascinates me about these conversations is I get to learn so much that I'll never know prior to these kinds of, you know, put your cell phone down types of conversations and what I really love is at the beginning of all of this work, I said I wanted to concentrate on being part of a team, trying to focus particularly through the chaos. And I got to tell you, man, at the end of this conversation, which I could keep going for hours, I know you've got a busy life and I got some things going on too. <laughs> I'll do it again. I'll do it again. But, work. I mean, I feel so much better because of, of a couple of different things. If you look at less, you will see more is going to be my first takeaway from today. I love it. I know. I got got so much shit going on, dude. And I've got to just zone in as I've been trying to and I've done a better job all year. But in particular right now, I got to really zone in to, to look at less so that I can see more. And yeah, I, and, no, it's a, it's a secret. It's a secret. And and by the way, and I'll I'll suffer and suffer and suffer um, because I've got a group of investors that believed in me. I mean, I'm just trying to use the principles that we've just talked about. You know, yeah. I, I got a group of guys, Rourke, that all put their money into me because they believed in me. Truthfully, they were like, dude, I don't know about your product. I don't know about this this thing that you want to do. But I believe in you, dude. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And for me, I feel like that's my friends. That's their money. I'm going to bust my ass every second of every day to protect it and to make it so that it turns into a positive investment for them. And by the way, it turns into a great thing for me, too. So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, man. So glad we talked today. Holy God, oh man, did I need you today. No, I appreciate it. I love it, man. I love it. Last thing. I'm curious because of today being uh, a day right after the midterm elections. I just would love to hear what you have to say about this. We talk about team, unity, suffering, together, et cetera. What do you think about what's going on in America today? You fought for this country. You put your life on the line. I, we are. I was trying to explain to my kids last night. I believe we may be the most divided we've ever been as Americans. And my son said, oh, yeah? Well, when were we the most together as Americans? And I yeah. said, for me, that's an easy answer. I mean, 9-12-2002 or 2001. 9-12-2001. We were brother and sister. Didn't matter what color you were. Didn't matter where you lived. We were brother and sister. We were Americans. And man, we are in a very seemingly strange place right now. What do you think? Yeah, it's weird times. I, I wouldn't disagree. Certainly in my lifetime in the modern era, 9-12 and, and the, you know, the, the months and, and probably a year or two beyond that, uh, it was pretty otherworldly kind of connection and, and, and um you know, seemingly uh, being all in the fight together. That that was a special time. I'd, I'd say certainly the folks that, that launched off in World War II, they might have had us beat in so much that not only were the fo- the young lads and ladies that went over to fight the war, but the folks back home, you know, building the building the gears of war and, and, and you know, doing what they need to do to support the war. Um, that, that did not happen in this modern era. I mean, I think the support for the troops has been otherworldly, but that was an era when even if you were home not fighting in the European 
in a Pacific theater, you were probably contributing in some ways. So that that was a probably, a, I would imagine, a magical, magical time. Um, I think a lot of it is is um, a little bit of veil of smoke when it comes to the way the media and we're digesting our information. So the, the problem, as I see it, is that the standard bearers for every topic are almost all extremists, right? So if you watch Fox News, you're getting one story. If you watch CNN, you're getting a very different story. And so if you're a Democrat and, and you're actually a talking head, you are probably at the far left scope of what you have to say to, to, to be getting airtime and the exact same thing for the right. You've got to be just hard over on every policy that defines um, that camp that you're in. And I think the danger of that, and then, you know, we're also, again, like we said, with social media and the 24-hour um, aggressive reporting cycle, about the only thing you hear, again, are extremists talking about. I think it's why podcasts are such a phenomenal format for um, communicating information, because you have that long-form time to unpack topics and to really talk through the issues as opposed to your 15-second clickbait on a major news media outlet. That's why I don't do a lot of those anymore because it's just they don't care about me. They care about the one little soundbite that might do them a favor and be good, and then they're going to move on. doesn't matter if I, Rourke, Denver said it or the, the other SEAL said it or Green Beret said it. You know, it's just what they do for their cycle. So I think one of the major problems is, is just – the conversation is only taking place at the extremes where most of us, and I, I believe this fundamentally, even if you took California and New York and most extreme parts of the country, I think most of us still live very, very close to the middle, very close to the middle. I think all of us, if we be true, and I frankly think even the extremists, if you got a moment of, of, of truth from them, would, would express the same, that a lot that most of us live much more towards the center. Look, I'm pretty fiscally conservative. I am very socially liberal. I grew up in California. I don't care who anybody's getting married to, who they're in love with, and, and what that looks like. If you're a good American working hard, paying your taxes, and trying to make this place a better place, I'd give a damn how you identify. I mean, I think there's slippery slopes there that we can go down a rabbit hole on, but, you know, I'm very liberal when it comes to that. And so I'm kind of all over the map when it comes to it. And, and look, do I think you get an abortion, late-term abortion is basically killing a child in life? Yes, I do. Do I think I can tell a woman what she can do with her body? No, I do not. So I think all of us live much closer to the middle. It's just the only conversation that's happening at a national level is at the extremes. That's our issue. I think everything is a lot better than we realize. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're all sitting here, not all, but I mean, most people are sitting around complaining, worried about where our country is going, and yet, you know, our our access to medicine, to, um, you know, facilities and products and comfort and design is otherworldly. There's never been a greater time to be alive. It's so easy. In fact, I think we need to get away from the easy and do the hard things like we're talking about early in our conversation just to get away from this insulated, comfortable world we've created. But I, I think that's the real issue. I think we need to have a third, you know, a third rail or a third line conversation that's that's more in the centrist space, which is where we all live as opposed to the extremist space. I think the extremists have hijacked the conversation and it's hurting us all. Boy, I think that is amazing analysis. Couldn't agree more. Rourke, yep. thank you very, very much for this amount of time. Really appreciate no, you. you. Yeah. Always, always, always say thank you for what you've done for this country, for the service that you've given to this country so that guys like me didn't have to do it. We could do race across America and suffer. We didn't have to go into jungles and carry guns and, and you know, risk our lives to suffer. So thank you for everything. And I sincerely appreciate this time. 
No, you're welcome. I, I feel honored and humbled to have been a part of it, and uh, uh, it's great to get some time in, miss you, and uh, hope to see you again soon. Yes, brother. sir. I, I feel the same. Thank you so much. Continued success, work. I appreciate it, brother. See you. Take care. Work Denver is amazing. Work Denver is truly incredible. Team, team, team. That's what I, I think about. Teammates suffering together, working together, practicing together, winning, losing. Team, team, team. That's what I hear with Work Denver. I love the quote, if you look at less, you will see more. Again, starting with the, the need to focus amongst the chaos. If you look at less, you'll see more. Incredible. How about the story of his coach at Syracuse? Again, they're getting ready to play North Carolina, and they're running them and running them. And he's easily going to win these races, but he's willing to sacrifice for his teammates to get them off the field because they're getting pounded on by their coach. I just find Rourke Denver to be incredible, and I swear to you, I'm not joking, I'm not exaggerating one bit. When I came into this this studio today, I was like huffing and puffing. There was so much chaos going on, and I just feel amazing at the end of all of this, and I hope you feel the same way. Thanks again to all the great sponsors, Gorilla Movers at GorillaMovers.com, Callaway Golf, CallawayGolf.com, not just for golf products, for great media around golf as well and the Brigantine family of restaurants. I'm sure I'll catch, to, catch you at the Brigantine in Del Mar. I found that Wednesday nights with Half Price Wine Night is kind of my go-to now. Thanks to everybody who helps make this podcast happen. My dear friend, Ali Ratt, who every week works with me and produces this, and, and Alex Padilla, who does all the, the physical labor to all of this. So thank you to you guys, and we'll see you next time. By Scott on the weekly solo podcast that on every Tuesday drops. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune into the next edition.